One of the five solas of the Reformation is sola fide, which is faith alone. So that still today we champion, we might say, we champion this tenet of the Reformed faith. Uh, We are saved by faith alone. To be saved is to be forgiven of our sins and counted righteous before God. We talked about this uh, this morning in in church, in fact. Um, We are counted righteous before God, and so we are saved by faith alone. And this is not the Reformers' doctrinal invention, nor is it just the idea of the church then or now. The Apostle Paul in Scripture writes in Romans 4, Now to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. And one of my favorite passages to this effect is in Philippians 3 verse 9, where Paul writes of not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith. In Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So, sola fide, a faith alone, the teaching of God's word that we are saved by faith apart from works. Uh, it's a teaching that we ought to revisit and recall and, and have impressed upon our hearts often, um, whether in church or in our personal or family devotions. Uh, we need to review it often because. Um, it, it is so contrary to man's thinking and, and to the way of the world. Salvation is a gift, uh, a gift full and free to the sinner. Uh, we need to review it, and it shouldn't be hard for us to want to revisit this teaching of God's word because it is the glory of the gospel. It's our grand hope amid the corruption of our flesh and our struggle with sin. God leaves no part of our salvation to us. He saves us, and he saves us to the uttermost, so that the call of the gospel is not to work for Christ, but to rest, to rest and do nothing. And by doing nothing, sweet, glorious nothing, we are saved. But now what? What do we do now that we're saved? Well, to some degree, the answer is, is the same. I'm going to keep pressing this point. We still do nothing. Uh, since faith is, is not a, a one-time event, but rather something that we continue to have in our relationship to, to Christ, so we continue to rest in Him. Yes, on the Lord's Day, we rest, but we also rest in Christ and do nothing each and every day. Uh, each and every day, we refuse to lift a finger. We refuse to do anything. That would discount the fullness of what Christ has done for us. Yes, we are called to obedience and good works. Yes, we are called to live daily in repentance. But this is all a response to what is fully and freely ours by resting in Christ. So what do we do now that we're saved? Yes, we work hard for Christ. But it's our motivation, you see, our motivation must be love, love for the Savior who has saved us. And our motivation is joy, joy for what is already ours by faith, by resting in Christ. And so our motivation is gratitude. 
we seek to obey and we do good works and we work hard, but we do it all to say thank you to Jesus for saving us from our sins. And so we need to keep in mind another tenet of our faith. And it goes like this. I think you've probably heard it before. That we are saved by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. Let me say it again. We are saved by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. And this as well is not our idea. It's, it's what the Apostle James writes uh, in his letter to the church. James 2 verse 17 says, So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But even more, it's what Peter writes in our text for this afternoon. We began to hear it last week already, and now we, we pick it up once again. Second Peter 1.5 says, For this reason, make every effort. So James uses the word works. Peter uses the word effort. But the idea is the same. Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. So what do we do now that we are saved? Peter actually gives us four things which will take us, uh, which we will take as four points within this sermon. First, as we've heard, supplement your faith. The fullness of what Peter writes here is this. Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. So Peter uses a, a lot of different terms here, but to some degree, they all mean the same thing. Supplement your faith or add to your faith virtue. Other versions uh, use the word moral excellence here. Also knowledge and self-control and steadfastness. Other versions say patience or perseverance. Even more, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. And so especially by returning to the word godliness, Peter shows that he's not naming all these completely separate things. Instead, it's something we might call it a collage, if you will. Uh, it's like a bouquet of flowers. And the call is to add this, this bouquet to your faith as we live for Christ, now that he has saved us. However, a couple things we ought to note about Peter's bouquet uh, is that it doesn't leave out knowledge. Peter has, uh, has already mentioned knowledge several times, and, and uh, we've made the point often in the past that uh, faith requires knowledge. Faith requires knowledge, and supplementing our faith requires growing in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, so Peter is not saying that, uh, well, first we have faith and then we, we pick up knowledge later. Instead, surely by including knowledge in his, uh, in his collection of things to add to faith, he is calling us to grow in knowledge. Even more, Peter uh, mentions and includes steadfastness. So the point is uh, not that we seek virtue once in a while, only for a season, but that we seek virtue or moral excellence 
continually, faithfully, in order to be steadfast in virtue and godliness. Like we said last time in closing, having struggled yesterday, let us struggle today. Having struggled today, again tomorrow. Again, not as if to save ourselves, not as if to add anything to the work of Christ for our salvation, but out of joy and gratitude, let us seek to be steadfast in loving obedience to our steadfast Savior, who is forever faithful to us. And finally, by way of special note, note that uh, Peter brings it around and brings it down to brotherly affection and love. The point is not just that we become morally excellent people. The point is certainly not that we become proud and, uh, and, and look down upon others. The point is that virtue and, and godliness are, are, are for the blessing of others. And so we can see that Peter also has in mind that uh, all of this supplementing, all of this adding to faith is to be done in the context of the church. Again, the point is not that we become proud and so we find ourselves too good to remain in fellowship with other sinners. Instead, let these two be added to our faith, brotherly affection. We can certainly say sisterly affection and love for one another. So I don't think we need to spend a, a huge amount of time trying to figure out the difference between all these things. Uh, what is the difference, for example, between virtue and godliness? Uh, in other words, Peter's list is, is not like Paul's list in Galatians 5. Paul writes in uh, Galatians 5.22. This, too, is a familiar uh, a verse or passage. It says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Uh, we could spend a sermon on each uh, and each piece uh, of these. In fact, we have in, uh, not so long ago in this congregation. But, but Peter, I think, is giving us again a collage, I want to call it, a, a somewhat poetic bouquet of, of those things that should mark the Christian life. And, and neither is he imposing some order upon these things, uh, as if virtue somehow precedes knowledge, and self-control follows after knowledge. Self-control uh, comes before steadfastness and, and, and so on. But certainly Peter gives us a, a comprehensive collage. And so not only are we called to make every effort at gaining these qualities, but we are given all of them as, as goals, as those things that we should aim for as we seek to live for Christ. And is it all too overwhelming? Well, just remember that Peter has already taught us that divine power is at work in us. His divine power, writes Peter, has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And so he goes on to write, for this reason, because of the divine power at work within you, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge with self-control, with steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. Second, what do we do now that we're saved? Second is apply your knowledge of Christ. 
Now, this is not an explicit call from Peter to apply your knowledge of Christ. In fact, this is not something different from the call to supplement your faith with virtue. But Peter writes in verse 8, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, so Peter is simply reminding his readers, reminding us, that the point of knowing Christ as our Savior is that we should then live for Christ. In fact, if we truly know Christ as our Savior, then we will live for Him. Just like last time, there is a certain chain of logic here, uh, and it goes something like this, that if we know Christ, then we will not just know that a man named Jesus once walked this earth, We will not just know a few things about him, what he did, and a few things perhaps that he said. No, the knowledge of Christ that Peter is talking about is knowing him as our Savior, as my Savior. So if we know Christ, then we will know that he is our Savior. And if we know, here's that chain of logic, if we know that he is our Savior, then we will know that he died on the cross for our sins. And if we know that he died on the cross for our sins, then we will know that he suffered for us, that he endured hell for us. And if we know that he did that for us, then we will love him and we will strive every day to live for him. So when Peter speaks of being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, I, I don't think he means to say that that's really even possible. In other words, no one can really say, oh, I know Christ, I'm, I'm just ineffective and unfruitful in my knowledge of him. If we are ineffective and un- unfruitful in our knowledge of Christ, then we simply do not know him. It's the same as as what we've said in the past regarding the knowledge of God. If if we know God, we will fear Him. By virtue of who He is, by virtue of His power and His glory and His holiness and His justice, those who know Him will fear Him. And their fear of God will be the evidence that they indeed know Him. If, If you ever hear someone say quite casually, Uh, Oh, God showed up this morning and and we spoke and had a very nice conversation. Don't believe that. If God shows up and speaks with someone, it's not likely that they would be around to tell about it. Well, in the same way, if, if we say we know Christ, and yet that knowledge has no effect on us, if it bears no fruit in us, then do we really? Do you really? know Christ. And I think this reading of Peter in in verse 8 is backed up by what he writes next in verse 9. It reads, uh, For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Now, Now the ESV rendering of this verse is somewhat unique and different from other versions. But I think the I think the ESV gets it right because Peter's point is this. That to be nearsighted is one thing. But at what point is being nearsighted the same thing as being blind? In the same way, at what point is being ineffective and unfruitful in a person's knowledge of Christ the 
the clear evidence that he or she does not really know Christ. I suppose another way to ask the question is this, can you finally forget that you've been saved? If you could do that, if you could forget that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, it seems more likely that you never really had that knowledge. And again, that knowledge unto conviction. You never really had that conviction in the first place. And so the connection is clear. The knowledge of Christ will lead, it it must lead to a life of obedience. It isn't that what we heard James, uh, and, and isn't that what we heard James say earlier, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And that's exactly what it means to say we are saved by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. If faith stands all by itself somehow, without being accompanied by a striving after obedience, then is it really faith at all? And so here's the third point. Confirm your calling and election. Peter writes next in verse 10, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. Again, Peter is not issuing a different call here. It's, it's still the same calling to make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. But here he's teaching us that by doing so, we are confirming our faith proving that our faith is real, that it's living, that it's a saving faith. Have you been called by Christ to follow Him? Has God chosen you from all eternity to be saved so that you have answered the call of Christ to follow Him? If we say yes, then let us confirm it. Let us take up our cross and follow Him. The question of one's election is is certainly not an uncommon question. People struggle with this. Brothers and sisters struggle with this. We shouldn't belittle the struggle that some have regarding their election. Perhaps it's your question, your struggle. But if we ever find ourselves with with that question and and in that struggle, then here's the biblical answer. How do do we know that we are chosen of God? How How do we know that we have been given a true faith in Christ? Jesus said, by their fruits, you will know them. We read that passage this morning. But Peter teaches that the same thing is true, not only as we look outward to others, but as we look inward at ourselves. One of the reasons that we do good works, as the Heidelberg Catechism says, we do good so that we may be assured of our faith by its fruits. Now, that's not the only reason. Remember, we do good works for the sake of joy, out of gratitude for the salvation that is ours, full and free by faith alone. And as the Heidelberg Catechism also teaches in the same answer, we do good works as well as a witness to our neighbors to win them over to Christ. But among the several works, I'm sorry, but among the several reasons for our good works is this one, coming back to where we started, that we do good works to confirm our calling and election, to confirm our faith as true in Jesus Christ. Now again, within this life, on on this side of heaven, our obedience will never be perfect. But the thing to see is, is that our sin 
certainly is a contradiction of our faith. When I, when I confess that Jesus died on the cross for my sins and yet I continue to sin, especially if I do it carelessly so that somebody has to come and point it out to me, what are you, what are you, what are you doing, brother? When I do that, I, I give at least some evidence that, that I don't really believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins because if I believe that it was my sin that put Christ on the cross, then will I not hate my sin? Because of what it did to my Lord. And to the degree that I do not hate my sin, will I not loathe myself for not hating my sin as I should? It's like we said last time, that, that Christians are consigned to a degree, to one degree or another of grief throughout their life because we are still sinners. Even as we confess that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. But the further thing to see is that even as sin contradicts faith, so obedience confirms it. So what should I do when I find myself sinning and contradicting my faith? I must repent. And here's the blessing of repentance and obedience, that it confirms what my sin contradicts. Even as sin contradicts faith, the repentance and obedience confirms it. So let us strive to obey. Let us make every effort... And let us do so with this promise in mind that obedience serves to confirm both our calling and our election. And so forth, what do you do now that you're saved? Fourth, you you deepen your assurance. Again, exactly in the same way, by making every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, you deepen your assurance. Peter writes, now in verse 11, For in this way there will be richly provided you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I want to say here, I'm going to take a certain reading. You can argue with me afterwards if you want. But I'm going to say that Peter is not referring here to some future entrance into the kingdom of heaven. Because I think if that was his point, he would be reverting to a kind of salvation by works. At least he would be confusing the issue. Because when he writes in this way, he's referring to our obedience in this way. Is Peter saying that by supplementing our faith with virtue, we will gain heaven? No, the entrance into the eternal kingdom that Peter refers to is now. He's talking about the assurance that we gain by supplementing our faith with virtue and by pursuing godliness. So, brothers and sisters, have this goal in mind as you live your Christian life, that as you live your life for Christ, you will see that Christ is living in you. Granted, it requires the humility to admit that neither faith nor obedience are of you, They do not and cannot come from you. But here's the blessing of humility. That as we set aside our pride, as we acknowledge God's sovereign grace, as we attribute both faith and obedience to God's work in us, then as we find faith, and even as we struggle for obedience, we find confirmation of our faith, and the assurance of eternal life. 
So let me just finish by giving you a welcome. Welcome. Brothers and sisters, welcome to the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. No, we're not in heaven yet. But we have already been given entrance. How do we know? Because we're here. We're gathered to worship Christ. We're not neglecting the Lord's Day gathering of the people of God. This is the point of Hebrews 10.25 when it speaks of not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. That this, the great, or that is this, the great day of Christ's return in glory is drawing near. So, so here we are. We're, we're confessing Christ. Do you confess Christ? I do. Here we are. Um, Remembering Christ. We had the Lord's Supper this morning. We remembered Christ in that very special way this morning. We're here celebrating Christ. We're here loving Christ. We're here on the Lord's Day resting in His work to save us. But now that you're saved, now that you've begun your week confessing Christ and and worshiping Him, here's the call of Christ to be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. So go out and live this week answering the call. Go out and live for Christ. Think about what you're doing and not doing. Consider how you're spending your time and your money, what shows you're watching, what music you're listening to. Give thought to your heart and your attitude. Repent of the sin that you find remaining in you. Be grieved by it. It Because if we belittle our sin, do you see? We belittle our faith. And if we belittle our faith, what assurance do we have? What sense of being in the kingdom of Christ will remain? So instead, live for Christ. Do it deliberately. Do it consciously. Do it intentionally. And as you do so, Acknowledge that it's only because Christ is living in you. And then, in that way, be assured of your faith in Christ. And by your faith, be assured all the more of your salvation in Him. Amen. Please pray with me. We thank you, O God, that you have saved us to the uttermost through the work of Christ and have called us in the gospel to rest in what he has done for us. May we then indeed supplement our faith, add to our faith uh, that uh, striving after obedience that will confirm our faith and that will deepen our assurance. So Lord, if we ever struggle with the doubt And surely we all do in one way or another and to one degree or another. O Lord, point us back to Christ and uh, grant that we would use uh, that means that your word gives us here uh, in this passage to, uh, uh, to come to a greater degree of being sure, sure of our faith in Christ, sure of Christ's love for us. May we strive for obedience and in do so, and in doing so, may we see that indeed Christ is at work within us. In his name we pray. Amen.